Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast and we are going to talk about something we thought was dead, buried, we'd never talk about it again, but it has been resurrected. <laughs> Brexit. Brexit <laughs> here in Dublin. Brexit looms large. Not so much looms large, but it's still, it's like, it's like, a, it's like an irritant. It's like an irritant. Yes. And of course, it has been uh, brought back to, I wouldn't say life, but to some form of life by recent events in Northern Ireland, where... Our friends, the DUP, who, as we said, are the party that never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity, opportunity. uh, have yet again missed an opportunity. And now they are fighting amongst themselves over a battle they could have never won, which was, imagine what the DUP did. They set themselves up, not only against the European Union, Mm -hmm. not only against the Irish government, but against the British government. Yeah. The government they're supposed to be loyal to. And uh, what we have is the DUP doing a U-turn Basically, and I think for people in Northern Ireland doing obviously the right thing, which is get the assembly up and running, get funds. My in-laws up north work in the health service. Mm. They were saying the health service in Northern Ireland is totally starved of funds, totally starved. The waiting lists on the NHS are enormous. School teachers in Northern Ireland are paid a fraction of what they're paid here and substantially less than what they're paid in Scotland or England. They run an all-out strike there. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And again, I was driving, and it's a strange thing. I was driving to Donegal last week. And to get to Donegal, you can go many ways, but one of which I was going through Enniskillen, south from Manor, very, very beautiful part of the world. Mm. The lakes, Loch Erne, all that. Yeah, it is gorgeous. And then I had to Donegal. But again, something you notice in Northern Ireland, and it's, it's a malaise of Britain in general, which is the roads are brutal. They've no lights on them. They've no markings on them. I mean, it's a different jurisdiction, but it's the same country. But, but it's it, like going into a totally different world. But isn't it funny, though, that when we were growing up, Driving to Donegal, you had to go through. Yeah, Northern or driving Ireland. to Belfast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And once you crossed the border, the roads were fantastic, and the cars were much better and as well. Everything was just brilliant. Clean, it would have seemed cleaner and all the rest. And now it's the opposite. It's because Britain has run out of money. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing: Britain has run out of cash, 
And when you run out of cash, everything stops, yeah. number one. Yeah, yeah. Number two, Britain has not been growing economically. Now, we forget that growing economically sounds like a slightly esoterical, not particularly easy concept to get your hands on. What it actually means is your income is falling. Yeah. Right, your income, your take-home wages are falling, your take-home income, your asset base, all that stuff. It's been falling, 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 you know, since more or less the Blair governments, yeah. the, uh, 2008 on, right? In various different iterations, they have had extraordinary austerity over the last 10 or 15 years, all of which driven by the ideology first of Cameron, who's been taken back into the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, I don't as, really understand that one. <laughs> and then by a variety of other Tories. And of course, the Tory party has become much more extreme uh, and much more kind of mad. I mean, there's a madness about them. Yeah, so yeah. all that's going on... They're tearing themselves apart at this stage. They are tearing themselves apart, but at the fundamental issue is that all economics starts with this thing called productivity. And the elixir of growth is productivity. Mm. And total factor productivity, if you can get it back. So the productivity of labour, the productivity of capital, which is basically how much juice you have to put in the engine to get the engine to work, yeah, right? Yeah. And what is happening in the UK is their productivity is collapsing, which means they're putting more and more juice into the engine to extract less and less growth, right? And what that means is that you don't have the money in the central coffers to actually spread around what yeah. they would regard as the regions, right? And of course, the region that is most regional for them is Northern Ireland. Yeah. And you take that piece of economic fact and then you superimpose on that the culture war called sectarianism in Northern yes. Ireland, yeah, right? Yeah. And you have a recipe for madness, right? And this is what has happened over the last while. And of course, the DUP, I mean, how did they think that they could actually have a hard border in Ireland? How did they think? Like, who were they talking to? I mean, in what world were these people discussing this, right? This is why they never missed the opportunity to miss an opportunity you know, just rings straight like a rings like a He's huge, often one. No, but it's like <laughs> you're like, absolutely in right. What fucking world, lads. Okay, and lassies. You know, I I understand. You know, when Churchill spoke about the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone, he was absolutely right. It's dreary and dull thinking based on a bizarre notion, which I think is disappearing of, of supremacy. Yeah. Right. Now we're in a situation where. They have a deal, they're back in the Assembly, but the Assembly will have a nationalist boss for the first time ever. Yeah. A Sinn Féin boss. For yeah. the first time. And maybe at the end of the day, they just didn't want a Fenian about the place. That was really... Well, that, was that, that is true. That is true. But let, 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 let me just broaden it out a little bit, okay? Because one of the big premises of, of Brexit was they wanted more sovereignty. And I've been yes. thinking about this a lot. It's the whole question. I want more sovereignty in my family, <laughs> let alone let alone the country. I want sovereignty in my own head. But let, let me ask you this, then. Like, in an international, globalised world, what does sovereignty okay. actually it's mean? A very, and, very good and, question. And how, how can it work? It's a very, very good question. And by the way, we're about to talk to Martin Wolf of the FT on Brexit. We're looking at Brexit. Brexit was in, ni- 19, I was about to say 1916, 2016. It's a long, long time yeah. ago, right? Yeah. You know, we're talking eight years. Yeah. It's a long, long time ago. So we're going to talk to Martin Wolf, probably the best economics commentator in the world. 
So we are in for a little treat in a sec. On the issue of sovereignty, John, one of the great charades imposed on all of us is to pretend that you have a certain amount of sovereignty in a globalised world, okay? Mm. Now, the interesting thing about being from a small country like Ireland is we've never, ever been rule makers. We've always been rule takers. So if you're a rule taker, you have to make do with the rules that come from somebody else, right? And this is because sovereignty has constantly been eroded all the time. It's impossible to have, for example, free capital movements, which we need, capital Mm. going in and out, free trade, trade going in and out, and sovereignty. Because once you say free capital movements and free trade, well, then you give away lots and lots of barriers that are so-called sovereign. The other issue is we, you know, free movement of people. Well, do you stop talent coming in or out? You know, we cannot in Ireland, having joined the EU, stop EU workers coming in here and British workers coming in here. They're the lion's share of the immigrants at the moment. They're actually not the lion's share, they're about half, right? Yeah. So the Brits said, okay, we want to be sovereign, so we want to stop immigration. What has happened to immigration in in Britain? It's tripled. It's tripled since Brexit. Yeah. So they kicked out all the Poles and the Romanians and the... Even with the threat of Rwanda and the whole lot. There's loads of... right, right. So... It's very, very hard to have sovereignty. And I suppose this goes to the core of what Brexit exposed. Brexit exposed the limitations of the delusions of grandeur. That is, we are a sovereign nation. We can go it alone. We can cut ourselves off. We can set the rules. We can be this buccaneering, almost Elizabethan notion of the United Kingdom. It can't be done. You basically have to take rules, deal with them, make them as applicable as possible yeah. and get on with it. And that's what the UK is going to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to Martin Wolf now yep. and then we're going to come back and see where does Britain go after this experiment? Because what it was, was an experiment. It's an experiment in diplomacy, an experiment in politics, but more than anything else, John, an experiment in economics. So let's go to London and let's talk to Martin. We have a little treat for you, Martin Wolf. I would say not even arguably the finest writer of economics over the last 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, Martin first uh, came over to Ireland to chat to me on Agenda on TV3 20 years ago, or even more than 20 years ago, and has been pumping out columns in the Financial Times on economics that are simply, they actually... They incur jealousy in other hacks, which is always a good thing. If, if you incur jealousy in the likes of me who's writing, you think, oh, no, that's the standard. How do I get up there? It's great to see you, Martin. How are you? Wonderful to have you. I'm fine. Uh, that's unreasonably flattering. <laughs> Let us talk Brexit. It hasn't gone away. Explain to me, is it seven years later? Eight years later? What, when was it? 2016 was the vote? Well, the the uh, vote was in June 2016. Right, so nearly... No, it's seven and a half years. So what has Brexit done to the UK? Because the UK has got an election coming up. It's our biggest partner. Not so much our biggest trading partner, but our biggest cultural influence now at this stage. Tell me what is going on in the UK against the background of Brexit. Well, first of all, as is so often, it's too soon to tell. And that was part of the purpose of my column, because uh, so far, we are still largely living off the relationships, the investments, the knowledge that was built up over what was, after all, 
a very extended period of uh, EU membership that began in the early 70s, if I remember correctly, exactly the same time as yours. Yeah. So that can't be wiped out. And I think that's one of the reasons why trade is held up reasonably well, though our share in imports of the EU, as I show in my column, has, has been steadily falling really quite significantly, but not at a massively swift rate. So I think there's a lot still to go on the economics because what's going to happen is that investment decisions start becoming dominant. And the I don't think anybody in their right mind that is interested in serving the EU market as a dominant part of their business activities, be they a British firm or a foreign firm, is going to invest in Britain. It just doesn't make sense. So there are cumulative losses. Um, it's similarly, uh, I think the best analyses indicate very significant losses in GDP. There's a quite controversial analysis just come out from a man called John Springford. It's very recent, who works at the Center for European Reform. And his argument is that GDP is about 5% smaller than it would have been if we hadn't joined. That's at the higher end. Some people think it's substantially smaller. I think his arguments are quite strong. So we know that there are pretty significant costs already. We see it in the trade data. I think we see it in the GDP data, but it's right at the beginning of this long-term process in which connections will not be renewed. They will not be recreated. Young people won't go to Europe and get to know it. And that's all part of the way we became closer and closer. So we're at the beginning of a long process. Now, in addition to the economics, there's, of course, the politics. And it's inevitable that this continues to be a dominant part of our political scene. The attitudes to Brexit, whether one thinks it was a terrible disaster or is a great decision that will be vindicated, continue to, to really, to say, divide, split the Tory party. A lot of these conflicts of is Sunak the right leader as opposed to somebody else is really just the Brexit war continuing. And that Brexit war is really a war of national identity and political identity, and it's breaking the Conservative Party, which as has frequently been pointed out, is probably the most successful democratic party, dominant British political party for nearly 200 years. So it has huge political and economic ramifications. And in some sense, it always will because it is going to change the course of the country. But we still don't know exactly how that will play out. We don't know what the next government will do. But I'm reasonably confident, in my very last point, I wrote about this about six weeks ago, that we're not going to go back in. So whatever it's done, it's going to go on growing. Now, let's just talk about the Tories. You know, the Tories are an unusual party, as you said, incredibly successful, very adept at gauging public opinion, shifting left, shifting right, going nationalist, going globalist, whatever, right? But they were always seemed to me to be also the party of small business. This was one of their basic constituencies, Small business is paying the cost of Brexit, and yet small business seem to have voted for Brexit. Yes. Well, there are a lot of very illogical votes in this. A lot of people in the northeast, for example, of England, working class people, voted for Brexit, just to give that example. And their most important employers were people like Nissan up in Sunderland. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the new manufacturing businesses created in the 80s 
lot, but by, as a result of Michael Heseltine's work, very significant figure then, were European-oriented foreign investors who went not to London. They went, of course, to the former industrial regions. And people voted. I, I think it's sort of Turkey's voting for Christmas. It's really depressing. Again, as you rightly say, the small business community has been overwhelmingly conservative voting. But you know, there's a famous... This is a famous remark by Boris Johnson, which is actually addressed to big business, when it was pointed out that big business wasn't very happy with this. He, he famously said, fuck business, if I may say so. Since he was the prime minister, maybe I can quote him. You can quote him, yeah. We, we've got that in parenthesis. You know, in, in Italian, exactly. Parenthesis. But I do remember Please, that. For a conservative prime minister to say that, it just, you know, throughout my life here, it would have been inconceivable, even as it were off the record. So I think the attitude of the party which has become essentially a right-wing populist party in a very British manner, not as racist, I think, as some, but very xenophobic in a political sense, uh, has carried with it a, a lot of people are perfectly happy with this, but of course it has sacrificed a huge part of its constituency. And I think that's what the polls are showing. You know, they've got a core vote, but they continue now for, I think, about a year to be 20 percentage points behind Labour. That's just colossal. And they're not showing signs of making any inroads. So they have been reduced to this fanatical core. And that isn't half the electorate. And it's completely incompatible with the history of the Conservatives, which was a very sort of pragmatic socially and economic, somewhat conservative party. And you could, however, trace this back really to Margaret Thatcher in the sense that's the first time, really the first time ever, that the Conservative Party became an ideological party. She was shrewd enough and good enough as a politician to keep sort of traditional conservatives on side as well, but it became ideological. Now the ideology has moved away from Thatcherism to this more narrow nationalism and I think they've just lost a lot of people in the process and they can't bring themselves together because they got rid of all most of the people who think that way. And their current membership is tiny and it mostly consists of relatively elderly people who are retired and therefore they don't care about the economics and who are very, very disgruntled about modern Britain. Now, let's just talk about, because the picture you paint is like, you know, quite a removed elderly population that are at the core of the Tory party membership. You have this move in the centre, the centre-right to sort of slight xenophobia. You have the Labour Party, which is, you know, as you said, 20 points ahead. Where did they stand on the Brexit issue? Because I want to bring it back to the Brexit issue. Is, is there any movements within the Labour Party that say, well, maybe we should renegotiate, maybe we should go back in, maybe we should open the doors again? I think... The Labour Party story over the last eight years is also fascinating. I mean, it's worth remembering that in the last general election, Jeremy Corbyn was their candidate, and he was certainly the most left-wing leader the Labour Party has ever had. Ever? I would say ever, yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're, remember the leaders were people like Ramsay MacDonald, even before the war, then Clem Axley, Maybe Lansbury, but he never got within a whisker of uh, of power. He was an idealistic socialist, but really Corbyn was quite exceptional, certainly in the post-war period, and he was repudiated dramatically. And the Labour Party seems to have concluded from that that was a very serious mistake and they were never going to win that way because they were driven back to their heartland of about uh, you know, 
third of the vote, which is where the Conservatives seem to be going. You know, there are a third of the people are fanatical on one side and the third on the other, but doesn't give you a majority. That's what the Conservatives always understood. Now, Starmer understands that. That's the point. He's running a broad coalition Labour. In this respect, he follows Blair and to take an earlier politician, Harold Wilson. He's that sort of politician. Yeah. So he's very pragmatic, very organised, very disciplined. It's an incredibly different party from that of Jeremy Corbyn, which, by the way, might tell you that this could happen to the Conservatives. In a first part supposed system, you need a majority. So if they want to win, they're going to have to do something like this. But coming to your question, I think it's clear Starmer was against Brexit. Very well known. He was a member of the Labour shadow cabinet and he was spokesman on Europe and he was against Brexit. We all know that. At the same time, he's very cautious and he thinks, and I've, I put forward all the arguments for this, that really trying to renegotiate Brexit will consume the whole of his government and the term. It's quite probable that he wouldn't be able to reach a deal with the EU because We've got to do more. We can't just go back on the terms we had before. It's not just undoing something. It's doing a new deal, essentially. And the new deal would clearly be more integrating. And the EU would have to be convinced we're not going to do this again, which he could hardly do in the teeth of almost certain conservative opposition. I'd probably require another referendum. And I think he would probably need a huge majority to reverse this. So I think he's basically going to conclude we cannot reverse it. And I think that's right. But we can improve things. And so what they're going to do, I believe, is try and go, as it were, larger below the radar, except for the fanatics on the other side, by trying to improve the trade deal, by trying to converge in regulation. For instance, I discuss food standards as an obvious place to say, we are going to adopt EU food standards. And we want you to certify that we are using EU food standards. And that would eliminate a lot of the problems with Northern Ireland. Yeah. That would be a pretty good deal. And and maybe do better deals on services. Uh, The Swiss have better deals. So try and find a range of things in which the EU and the UK can converge. And there's one other factor, which I think is important, which a lot of the European leaders now understand. The EU is looking increasingly isolated given what's happened with American politics. Yep. The, the Ukraine war issue, which for many European leaders is pretty existential, rightly, in my view. And in that context, good relations with the UK, obviously more important for Britain than for the EU, but still it's the Britain is one of the three major powers in Europe. It's one of the two significant military powers. Uh, I think there is a case the Europeans will also feel we need to be closer to the UK. I know this won't mean so much in Ireland, neutral state, but Ireland's you know way out there in the West, and most EU members have a rather different view and relationship with Russia. No, no, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. You have, and the UK is very firm on this, and the Germans and the French appreciate that. So, so let's just conclude this about the UK, Martin, this piece, right? Because I think you're absolutely right on neutrality. You're absolutely right on NATO. You're absolutely right on Russia. You know, Ukraine is existential, not least because there is a massive land border. And there's also a not insubstantial centuries-long history with Russia. 
in that part of the world. And it hasn't been pleasant on either side. So let's just look at the UK, right? What does the UK look like in five, 10 years time? I mean, I'm trying to think historically, I'm trying to think comparatively, I'm trying to think geopolitically. Is there a model of a country that sort of willingly backed away from a reasonably plausible alliance, went out on its tod, decided to go different, fueled populism? I'm I'm trying to figure out, is there a model from history, economic history, or is there some sort of conceptual idea of where the UK belongs or goes in the next five or 10 years? That's a very good question. I have to think about that quite carefully. The UK's history is a bit sui generis. I sometimes think the only country which is sort of a bit like the UK is Japan. You know, major island, power, considerable military power, economically powerful. I mean, it's not perfectly, which has always had this very complicated relationship with China. Yes. And Britain, Ireland, uh, similarly, semi-attached to the continent politically, never part of the Holy Roman Empire, for example. That's a very important point vis-a-vis the major continental neighbours, Germany, France, and Italy. Left Roman Catholicism uh, 500 years ago, which was also an enormously important moment, but it's always had this very difficult relationship with continental powers and spent, let's be clear, most of the last 500 years fighting Continental powers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And trying to prevent them successfully from uniting the continent. Now, so when the continent started being united under the EU perfectly peacefully, and therefore we couldn't really object, and voluntarily created a sort of existential crisis for the Brits back in the 50s, which coincided with the collapse of the British Empire. And the decisive figure, in my view, in British history who recognized these realities and acted upon them was Harold Macmillan who did his famous winds of change speech on the empire and then applied to join the EU. But if you look at it, again, I make the comparison with Japan. When I talk to the Japanese who complain about our leaving the EU, I say say to the Japanese, obviously in fun, but you wouldn't apply to join China, would you? However big it is. Now, the truth is, I think the relevant thing is Britain's long-term relationship with the continent We are a European power. We have a European civilization. That's absolutely clear on every dimension. But we've been outside the European power system. We have had a global power relationship, now shown most obviously in our relationship with the US, one-sided as it is. And we want to preserve a lot of us, I don't, but a lot of them, are independence from Europe. So what happens in the next five, 10 years, I think, is this existential question about where Britain belongs will continue to be struggled over. And I think over the next 10 years, we won't be able to resolve it. It just won't be resolvable. And the question is, is this halfway house in which we're affected by Europe, we care about Europe, we're engaged in it because we can't not be, and the other way around, but we aren't actually going to embrace it. Can that be managed successfully? And that's the biggest question. If it can, we can have a reasonably peaceful and I hope reasonably prosperous life here. And if it can't, our politics will remain very, very fractious, very populist, and we'll probably get more of this awful stuff we're seeing now back in a future government. 
Martin, wonderful, wonderful stuff. I was just thinking the Meiji restoration under a reunited Tory party with the mates in America, but it's, it's wonderful stuff. Listen, that's great. The Japanese idea, you know, because it is like, where does Britain, where does it stand? And I think, you know, the idea that Britain is a little bit like Japan in terms of its offshore island status, its Pacific status, it's constantly looking west rather than constantly looking yeah. east. You know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Very, well, remember that the Japanese got their original culture from China in the first millennium AD, and we got our original culture, let's be very clear, from Rome. Both, we were part of the Roman Empire, which actually Ireland wasn't, and of course we got the Roman Catholic Church, which basically created, you know, that was English civilization for a thousand years. You can't get away from those fundamental realities that this country is European. End of story. Which means, of course, since that was the cradle of things European, Roman and Italian. Because that's where it started. Yeah, no, absolutely. Martin, thank you so much for your time and we will talk to you very soon. Wonderful. Thanks, David. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That was brilliant. I, I, I have one burning question out of all of that. What the hell is sui generis? <laughs> I have to explain to you, right? So when we're doing the podcast, right, we have our guest on the line. We're sitting across from each other, right? And I'm always watching John's face as the discussions are going on. And Martin just mentioned sui generis there and just ah here. What the <laughs> fuck is that? I've never heard that before. What does it mean? Sui generis, Latin, right? Yeah, of course it, it means is. unique. 
to us. Right. So if something is sui generis, it's not general. It's only specific. So what he's talking about is Britain is rather unique right. in certain areas. Aha! But sui, I'm going to use, I'm going to keep using the podcast, right? <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the the substance at hand. Well, well, actually, speaking of sui generis, you know, Britain certainly is sui generis. Um, the sui generousness of <laughs> exactly. the sui generosity. <laughs> you know, where does it belong? Where does Britain belong? You know, it's, it has been this unique... He's, by the way, he's got his serious head on now, right? He's got this, okay, get your, get your shit together, okay? This is a serious podcast. This is a serious, serious thing. Okay, where does Britain belong? Question number one. Politics. A, the North Atlantic. B. B, in Europe. C, in Japan. D, on our Sweeney Todd. Okay, let's answer this question. Where does Britain belong? Please. It's really fascinating. I think Martin put it very, very well. And I think his comparison with Japan is really, really elegant yeah, and, yeah. And, and gets you thinking a way bit. And what he's basically saying is that, you know, Jap- one of the reasons that Japanese neurosis towards China is Japanese culture comes from China. And he was making the very point that British culture comes from Rome. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then, so you had the Celts, you had our crowd, then you had the Romans. And we forget the Romans were in Britain for hundreds of years. Yeah. There was an amazing piece of archaeology a couple of years ago, where four skeletons were unearthed, I think, in somewhere in the city of London. And uh, they were Roman skeletons. Mm. And most fascinating DNA search on the, on, the, on the four skeletons, two of them, two of them were from North Africa. Right. One of them was Yugoslavia. And the fourth one was a Britain, a Celtic Britain. So it has always wow. been quite cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. If you read Chaucer, right? If you read, you know... All these ancient English texts, they, they speak of an incredibly diverse society, even in the 14th mm. century, right? Even in the 14th century, if you, if you go back to, I think, what was her name? Sort of Gwendolyn of Norwich and all these yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. These, these, <laughs> Margaret Kemp and all these sort of, of books that were written, the very first biographies written in the English language. They, they speak of lots and lots of different races there. Mm. So it's always been this bizarre country but as Martin said, it's been offshore. It's not continental. Yeah. And that is an unbelievably salient point. It has always been what they term Atlanticist, right? So therefore, after the Second World War, their alliance with the United States was an extension of Castle Ray's foreign policy. And Castle Ray was the guy who was negotiating after the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. And their major, major obsession in British diplomacy has been always to isolate Germany, to keep Germany away from France and away from Russia. So if you look at all the traditional British alliances, they're with Russia and France, surround Germany all the time. But there's a whole load of Saxons in in there's a whole lot of and they're Germans. Well, it's funny. I was looking at the David Beckham documentary. Forget my highfalutin stuff. What I actually do is I watch the Netflix thing. I love the Beckhams. There's something about them that are compulsive for you, right? But the fascinating thing is when you look at the Beckhams, when you look at the British, they're Saxons, right? Like, they're blonde, blue eyes. I remember when I first went to England, I was always amazed how tall they were. They're much taller than us. Yeah, yeah, They're really tall people, right? (laughs) So they've always been mixed up. But where does it go now? I I think that this idea of a nation, an amalgamation of nations, a former imperial power looking for a role, it's still trying to find its way. And, you know, if the United States is on a 
declining path, if you assume that. Yeah. And if the Brits have moved away from the European Union, it's very hard to see them having a material role. They're not Japan, because Japan is a proper industrial country. They are not Japan because Japan is a singularly Japanese race. Mm. They have very few immigrants, right? They are not Japan because Japan has one of the biggest, biggest holding of American government bonds, has been running a current account surplus for years, etc., etc. But what they are is a substantial race or nation that needs a new role. I have no idea what they do. And I don't think they have any idea what they do. Yeah, yeah. And I think they are going into an election year that these discussions will not be on the table, right? It'll be about, as it always is, health and education and taxes and whatever. But the bigger question for the United Kingdom is that having started their imperial project in Leash, which they did under the Tudors, under the plantation, I mean, that was the start of it, right? And Well, they had a little go in in, in France, around Calais and all those, right? But their actual imperial project started in Leash in the... Electric picnic. In electric picnic, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, it started in the early 16th century in earnest, right? So that's the Tudors. And then it yeah. became real under Elizabeth I. It's a 400-year project. It's over, right? It started in Ireland. Now it's over. They have to figure out not the next 400 years, not the next 40 years. I'd say the next four years of Doom Grant. If they can figure out where they are going to be in about 2028, that'll be a result. We'll talk to you next week.